Hello and welcome to this week's episode. We have Dr. Mona Delahook, who is a licensed clinical psychologist with more than 30 years of experience caring for children and their families. She's a senior faculty member of the Perfectum Foundation organization dedicated to supporting families of neurodiverse children, adolescents, and adults. Dr. Delahook holds the highest level of endorsement in the field of infant and toddler mental health in California as a reflective practice mentor, or RPM. She's a frequent speaker, trainer, and consultant to parents, organizations, schools, and public agencies. Dr. Delahook has dedicated her career to promoting compassionate, relationship-based neurodevelopment interventions for children with developmental, behavioral, emotional, and learning differences. She's the author of the award-winning book, Beyond Behaviors and Brain Body Parenting. Her popular blog at www.monadelahook.com covers a range of topics useful for caregivers and childhood providers. Everything will be in the show notes. You know, someone who is trying to become a parenting specialist, maybe even an expert one day, having someone to look up to like Mona is an honor. And uh, the fact that she's on the show is huge because Beyond Behaviors is a beautiful perspective on the idea of not looking at just the behavior itself, but what's going on within your children. And I know for me, having an almost four-year-old and an almost one-year-old, behaviors are always shifting, adjusting, and we as parents need to pivot, adjust, and learn more about our kids, become aware of our children, and observe what's beyond and behind what's going on, and not just the behavior. So... Let's get right into it. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. We got Dr. Mona Della Hook on and we're going to talk about the brain, the body, parenting in so many fun ways and it's so interesting. Before I was a parent, I didn't know about these people and all of a sudden I become a parent. We got all these cool people that are just in an unbelievable world of impacting so many parents in such a beautiful mm-hmm. way. So Mona, can you introduce yourself before I steal and t- talk about you more than I should? Um, Cause we got oh, questions no. to ask, you know, we got <laughs> questions to ask. Let's get to the questions. So I'm just so happy to be here. Bit. I'm so happy to be here. Well, yeah, I've been one of those therapists, one of those infant toddler up through adult therapists for decades, actually. So I started out as adult therapist. But then um, about a decade in, I just felt like I needed to know more about the brain and the body and infants and toddlers, because I was seeing so many teenagers, Allie, that I just like, I wished I could have had their parents in my office when they were toddlers because they're telling me things about their early childhood. So long story short is I wanted to do like more prevention and see what I could do in that field. I'm so glad I did. So I took about five years off. I got two postdoctoral certificates in neurodevelopment, which is really kind of how the brain and body develop uh, together from Mm -hmm. birth, from actually in utero uh, on. And um, yeah, I was in private practice. I still am for 30 years. And um, But along the way, I realized that a lot of the concepts that I had learned and I felt were super important to understand, especially related to childhood behaviors, 
were not uh, properly understood in like the education system and mm-hmm. even in our own field of mental health. So uh, I started blogging and that led to uh, one book after another. I'm now on my um, third book, Brain Body Parenting, and um, talking to amazing folks like you, therapists, dads, moms. And uh, yeah, this is a great way to put a bow on my whole career. I love it. Uh, it's amazing. And, you know, you're, you're, I don't know if you have been, and, and um, I've only been following you for a, a little bit over a year, but mm-hmm. you, you're becoming this forefront of the face of a lot of mm-hmm. um, people to look at as that professional to, to guide or to, to mm-hmm. understand. How has that journey been? Like, did you expect, not, not no one expects that, but how is that? place where you sit now to help people in such a beautiful way at such Mm. a hard time in their life having kids. Yeah. I like gratitude doesn't even begin to describe how I feel about my career because, you know, I, when you, when you go out there and start as a therapist, you know, it's a private field. I mean, especially when I started all those decades ago, um, talking to people on the phone was considered like inappropriate, right? It was one-on-one in a small room. And, and so from where I started to then blogging, right. And writing like one of my blog posts, some of my blog posts that I started off with, I had nobody helping me. It was just one little Facebook page that I barely understood how to do. And then but they'd get like 17 or 20,000 shares. And I like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one having these thoughts. I'm not the only one wondering about, you know, oppositional defiance and what does it mean? And why is it so hard to treat? So I'll just say, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I never thought I would, I never thought I would write. I thought I would just be a therapist till I was like a hundred and, you know, take a cane into my office and and then and then the books happened um and i just feel really fortunate that that really the world is resonating with this need to move things forward beyond behaviorism which was breaking news 100 years ago but mm-hmm. or less than 100 years ago you know 70 years ago to 50 years ago and to really now show that we have nervous systems we have bodies, we have mm. brains that are working in ways that are far more beyond our behaviors. And mm-hmm. I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful to be thought of as someone with um, some knowledge that's worth sharing. Yeah. And, and you know, for, for me as, as a parent, um, growing up in the age of the 90s, the 80s and 90s, and the parenting of you know, fear-based or kind of authoritative parenting to be able to kind of, I don't want to use this word, but I will because it's a free, you know, there's a free for all here, like submissiveness of a child, kind of like holding them into certain boxes. You have to do this. You need to do this. This is what happens. And, And there's such still pushback. I know I work with parents a lot on, well, this is how I was raised. So we're doing this for our kids, like right. intensity, aggression, right? And right. So the first right. question I really have is, yeah. how does the more, even though it seems really progressive and fluffy, but not, 
how does the more compassion we add to our kids and our their environment actually help us as parents? Let's focus on us as parents first. How does it help us as parents? Yeah. And then how does it help our kids? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, let's talk about the beginning of what you said, because I think it's so important to realize the impact of how we were parented, right? Like those early models that many of us had of of good parents, like well-intentioned parents, like really good parents, okay? Let's just say no blame, no shame. I have you know, as a parent, I have no desire to shame other parents because we do the best we can. So we have that. And then, and then there was this interesting um, and and pretty significant research that came out in the, I think it was the eighties and nineties. So this research influenced me as a parent. I wonder if it influenced you too. It's, it's, it was Diana Baumrind talking about how authoritative, a mixture between warm and loving and authoritative was like, they did studies and like, that's the best mix. So you have to be authoritative and then be nice at the same time. Well, you know, I, I practice that to the T. I was very authoritative. I liberally used timeouts on my kids. And, and I, that to me, that was a green light to say, oh, good. Like I can have, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can be that like parent, like, you know, right and wrong. And then I can also be nice and add to that. Okay. Fast forward. That was breaking news in the eighties or nineties, but now we have this, this thing that messes it all up and it's called individual differences. And it's called the child's nervous system. What you do to one child or say to one child is going to be completely different than the next. And unless we read the child's nervous system in real time, we're not going to have a very effective roadmap. And I'll just throw myself under the bus. One of my kids, I was a discipline. I, I disciplined them all with like this loving authoritative basket because again the research back then was like breaking news this is the best way to parent so i did it to all three of them even though they were all different and one of them internalized this this kind of scary mommy you know that was like i'm finding this i found this out decades later so like stab to the heart but okay i'm human too we make mistakes and I just want other parents to not make the same mistakes I did. You'll make different ones, no doubt, because it's no way to parent. We cannot parent perfectly. We all are perfectly imperfect. But I want parents to know that a one-size-fits-all approach, like the research said in the 90s, is now shifting to customized parenting. It's like personalized medicine. You you don't just take one drug for something. You figure out what your what your body and cells need, and then you give the person this this medicine that's created just for them. And you know, I, I love that so much because I'm learning that in the hard way now. My three year old, and I refer to her on the show and on social media as the Rickster, right? My little my little lady. Uh, yeah, your little Rickster. Is, the Rickster. Her name is Ricky, so I call her the Rickster. Um, <laughs> so and cute. It's catching on, by the way. Her teachers call her that. It's just. Um, it's, <laughs> I hope she likes it as a teenager. I she, think it's kind of cute. Yeah, we'll see what she likes. She can pick her own name later. Very cute. Um, yeah. And she 
needs a lot more direction and, uh, you know, distractiveness and, and all these kind of things and, and a lot more compassion and TLC. And my son, who's six months old, right, who can't really talk, little dude, um, <laughs> you know, it would be really easy if he was the same. Yeah. But I know in my heart, I know in my mind, I know in the research that it's not going to be. And that's beautiful. And to yeah. me, I think a lot of times parents look at the two kids and go, why are you so different? It's such a struggle. To me, it's the uniqueness and beauty that my kids are different. I don't want cookie cutter children. I don't want them all the same. I don't want them to look just like the other one. Similarity, great. So I know that they're my kids. That's really nice. Or I know they're siblings. Very cute. Family pictures, we can look somewhat similar. But personalities, I want diversity in my home. That creates excitement. That creates uniqueness. It creates an adventure. It creates, yes, a massive challenge. But so much fun and interest in the way that they talk and the inquisitiveness and the curiosity. And so for me, then, the question I have is, you know, that idea of being more compassionate, right? Being more compassionate for ourselves. Yeah. In the thick of it, right? Kids having a tantrum. You know, my daughter has a hard time with, you know, starting the bedtime process. Or she started doing this very cute thing where she says, Daddy, I forgot something. And she asks for another thing. She goes, Daddy, I forgot something. Right? And you're tired. End of the day. How do you push past the natural instinct that we have to control and power struggle and push and say, hey, this is happening. Anger, aggression, intensity, frustration. What are some things that we can do as parents to give more compassion to our kids because they need it so much more than the, you know, boogeyman or intensity. Mm, they do need it so much more. And the first step is just to know that they need it. Um, And then when we shift, like we, we put on different glasses, we put on a lens that lets us see that these behaviors are really incredible. Like a toddler's ability to say something like, daddy, I just, oh, I forgot something. You know, that is social problem solving. So if you can get outside of yourself and go, oh my gosh, she's so, she's putting all these pieces together. That is called social problem solving. She's doing it sideways. So it's even more interesting because she knows that if she just says, I don't want to go to bed, it's not going to float. So first of all, we need to admire it. I admit it is way easier to admire that as a grandparent than as a parent. And I know like, like now I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe she just did that. She's like creating these excuses. And I know that's going to help her in her social life later on. So we admire what they're doing. And B, we understand that going with the flow of what we need our kids to do, if they're toddlers, a million percent, I'm talking like, you know, birth to five here. And then if it's, and if they're wired differently, if you have a child with developmental delays or, or challenges, that the pace of which we are pushing our kids is adult pace. A kid's pace is that their nervous system needs to slow things down and Mm -hmm. getting them to bed and brush their teeth within, you know, a half hour for some kids that may work. Some kids may need five minutes and some kids may need an hour. Um, It depends on their nervous system. That doesn't mean we can't stretch them. That's called shifting their, like 
holding their challenge zone and making it stretch, getting it bigger. But we can't do that in one day. It has to take many days. So I think this idea of understanding child development, um, zero to three, this big, huge organization did a study um, a a few years back, and they found that most parents have this expectation gap between what they think their kids should be able to do and what their kids can actually manage (laughs) emotionally. So we need to bridge the expectation gap. And And I love that so much because... You know, uh, there, there's something that I struggle with, and I, and I really was waiting to ask you this as the expert um, and child psychologist and, and, and really um, the forefront of understanding kids' brains. Is there such thing as the truth behind the ki- kids being manipulative in nature mm. yeah. versus – because my, my viewpoint is, yes, they are maybe trying to get what they want because I don't – who – someone tells me to go to bed, I don't want to go to bed. I want to play, right? I want to make excuses. I want to say I have to pee three times. I want to say I forgot something. I want to say this because I'm trying to delay something I don't want to do. Is that manipulative and how unhealthy is it to view our children in that way? Mm. It's not manipulative in the common understanding of manipulation. It's social problem solving, which is their job. And if a child is delaying something like bed, which is basically separation into darkness, even if you co-sleep, sometimes it's difficult because going from conscious to unconscious is like this mystery, magical thing for kids. And they want to play. They are hardwired to play, whether that's asking us questions or just running around the house. They don't have the context of what the right thing to do is. And so they are wired to, their nervous system is asking them to connect with us. And when we view it as, well, they should know, if this is the bedtime routine and, you know, they're manipulating because they're not going with the flow. No offense, because honestly, I did believe that <laughs> when my kids were growing up. But now with my granddaughter, I see it completely different. I see it as, oh my gosh, she's struggling with saying goodnight to me. This is hard for her. And sometimes, as you know, she's almost three. Sometimes I'll put my hand on, on her chest or back. I feel her heart beating fast. Her nervous system is having difficulty moving away into her little crib, into her bed, and she is stalling. And it's heroic. It's not manipulative. It's my job to maintain boundaries because I can't let her stay up till midnight. Um, But it's also my job to say things like, oh, my sweetheart, this is so hard to stop playing this is a bummer. We have to stop playing, isn't it? Bah. I can't wait till blueberry pancakes in the morning, though. I mean, that what I just did was kind of like I'm co-regulating. I'm taking my tone of voice. I'm taking my body and I'm saying, I'm going to take that difficult feeling and I'm going to see you and I'm going to be there with you and I'm going to hold my boundary. Hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but... Ask uh, away. <laughs> 100% it makes sense, right? I understand. And I think it's I think it's just so hard when we're like, 
I have things to do. I gotta go. Like, what's happening? Oh my goodness! Oh, you're delaying it, right? Yes. Like la- last night, my daughter. Well, there was a huge thunder, light and lightning storm oh. out here in Vegas. Oh, fun! Scared her. Uh, oh. And yeah. I don't think she's experienced it that loud before. Yeah. And um, you know, we're not in our home. We're not in our normal wow. setting, right? Setup. So yeah. I was upstairs. There, there's like a crib in the room and a bed. And yeah. She just wanted. She just needed to know that someone was in the room. Yes. And I stayed in the room, but I don't do that every night. Right. I knew that you needed a little extra TLC and a little extra love and something that. Wow. But let me just stop you right there. That was beautiful. I want your listeners to hear what you did and it's, it's called responsive parenting. You were responding Her need to have someone else in the room, secondary to having a stress response about being in a new place, number one, but also experiencing something scary was so healthy for her. And it was so responsive of you to say, you know what? She needs an adult in the room. This is legit. Mm -hmm. That builds self-regulation. Over time, over the years, that builds self-regulation. Yeah, and and I and you know sometimes it's hard to know or feel like you're doing the right thing when you're tired and frustrated and you want yeah. to be in your own bed and things of that nature. Yes, but it's really one of the biggest things that I have tried to learn myself is to be able to sit back and look at my kid. Yeah, and actually, and actually see them. Yeah, what's going on, and not in a way right. that is um, delusional or biased or. And of course, we're going to have those thought processes because it's our yeah. kid, but in a way to kind of. What do they need for me to help them get from point A to point B? Yes. And that's not so simple. Sometimes. I love that. And it's not so simple. And and, and when yeah. you're tired and you have a life to live, I mean, honestly, as a as a working mom of three, I remember feeling, look, I know you're upset, but if in this family, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to tow tow the the rope sometimes. You're gonna have to suck up and be in this family the way I need you to be. Yeah. Those are legitimate feelings because we are stretched. And let's just admit that modern industrial society is what, less than 300 years old? And human beings clinging to their mommies and daddies all day is thousands of years old. So what we're doing is a huge experiment. Yeah. And, and you know, for me, I think it's, it's so important uh, for that, like, patience for ourselves, patience for our kids to understand what's going on. And, and the thing that I really, you know, like I said to you before we got on the chat, I was so excited to read your books and I bought them. I was ready for the interview. And of course we moved across the country and the moving company didn't realize that I wrote, don't touch these books and threw them in a box and they're somewhere. But in one of your books, you talk about how the idea and I want to just preface this, for example, because adults don't like this either, micromanaging, right? Adults yeah. don't like to be micromanaged. Some people maybe need it for functioning or productivity somehow in their job, but most adults don't like to be micromanaged. But we do it so easily to our kids so often, and I would yes. love to hear your perspective on how if we stop micromanaging, what do we do instead, right? Mm-hmm. What's the replacement? And on top of it, how does that lead to a more joyous and happier child? Well, think about micromanaging again, and I have so much compassion for micromanaging because it helps us feel like we have some control. 
And control is really important when you feel out of control. And many parents feel out of control most of the time because our life has been taken over by these incredible creatures that we adore and we would do anything for. But we've lost ourselves sometimes. We've lost our life. And for those of us trying to work at the same time, it's this this like this pull towards this polar, you know, pull towards like micromanaging so that you can survive. So if you have to micromanage, I say that's absolutely fine. (laughs) We do what we have to do to survive. But going for joy, here's the other idea. For our kids and for ourselves, when we're anxious, the best antidote for anxiety is a little bit of joy. And for many parents, that's the last thing we have on the list because we're so entrenched in getting them dressed, getting them to to school, getting them to daycare, going to work, making dinner, getting them to bed, like the hamster wheel that it is, that this dreaded hamster wheel, we're like, and who- Describe my day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, like it's so hard. And my heart goes out to parents who don't have relatives or neighbors who can help them. Because again, if you have your 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 parents around or or if you have neighbors or if you're privileged and you have someone who can help you but many of us don't and so i just want to say that it's like the polar opposite of what we would think but if you can let go of the to-do list for 5 minutes a day and find some joyful silly fun cozy thing to do with your child you'll actually have to micromanage less because mm-hmm. they're going to be more cooperative. Mm-hmm. So if we can remember that engagement, relationships, um, the the research on resilience is so unequivocal about this, mm-hmm. that the thing that builds resilience and self-regulation, which is, you know, that eventual ability to, to stay controlled in my, in my body and my emotions and my behaviors is solid, predictable, and cozy relationships. So I say up the coziness factor, throw out some of our predisposed ideas like, oh my gosh, if I, you know, if they go to bed 10 minutes late tonight, then I'm going to lose all my authority. You know, like Mm -hmm. you don't have to do that. I love that you just added that part. I think that we get very strict about small things that aren't as important as we're making them seem or believe to be. Um, you know, I have two, two anecdotal stories. Something I try to do with my daughter every day is when we, I like, I drive her to school because I have the more flexible schedule and, uh, we, we do like a dance party in the car. Like we listen to music in the car. That's so fun. Yeah. And thank God I was able to convince her to start listening to more adult music because I was getting a little tired of Baby Shark. (laughs) Just a little bit. I was about to, you know, break my phone. So we do Baby Shark. And then there's another artist that I listen to, Imagine Dragons, that she loves now. Oh, nice. A a song called Sharks. So we do the, she says, okay, I want the Baby Shark and I want the Big Shark. That's That's the Big Shark song. Okay. I love that. And we sing. And then she tells me to stop singing because she wants to sing. She wants to be the one who sings. She's a big personality. And it's just about, like, and it's stressful to get out of the house. Like, we got to go, come on. And I'm like, you know, hurting her a little bit. Not H-U-R-T, but H-E-R-D, right? Yeah. Like a a hurting. Like Like a a little lamb. Like a little lamb, right? (laughs) Come on, this way. And I'm, you know, using my arms and, you know, and uh, get the shoes on and, and we're getting out. But those 
three to let's say five minutes of our life is just mm. joy and laughter. Ugh. And to me, love if we that. can add that more, yes, we are busy. And I'm not and yes, we're not perfect. And I struggle as a parent and I snap sometimes and I get frustrated. And yes. I'm human. But those five minutes remind me and ground me as a parent about why mm. I'm a parent and what it's all about and why oh. I love my kid. Because I remember when my daughter, when my son came home, right? My, a little dude came home and my daughter was having a really rough two weeks adjusting to another person mm. in the home. Mm. And I prepped my wife and I did more research and I was understanding it. And, and there was one moment where I looked at my wife and she looked at me and she's like, this is not the person we know. And then yeah. all of a sudden, a week later, she was back to the Rickster. Yeah. And we're like, there she is. There this she is. is. This is the person. Yes. And, and sometimes we lose ourselves and our kids don't know who we are. So we have to be a lot more compassionate. And I think as parents, we are so hard on ourselves. And I think that, that we do a disservice to parents posting these perfect things and talking about these perfect yeah. ideals. And one of the things that I, I love that you do so much is realism. Like you're just real about it. Mm. That we make mistakes, that we aren't perfect, and we shouldn't make others feel bad about their parenting yeah. and ourselves about our parenting. And and for for you, wh- what do you think is some of the hardest things that parents struggle to let go of slash maybe have been taught that they have to hold on tighter as parents? Yeah, the- by the way, I hope everybody like highlighted what you said about those three minutes of joy in the car with with singing together because if you can add something like that to your routine, it's just so magical. It's so beautiful. By the way, it's why we moved out somewhere else is that we didn't have that ability out in New York as much. It was the, the our schedules were just so tight, a lot tighter, yes. and the environment and the and the outdoors ability. I mean, every. I'm not telling everyone to move to another place if you can't. Yeah, we had yeah. the ability. We had family here. Yeah. It worked out for us. Yeah. We have a pool in, in the backyard. Oh. Every night after my daughter comes home from a long day of school or camp or wherever she's at, yeah. we go into the pool for like 30, 45 minutes. Oh. And it's just fun. And you yes. forget the stress. So you forget the fun. argument in the morning with your kid. And you forget yes. the pressure. Oh. Also, it tires them out, which is a, a twofer. Oh, you know? it it's amazing. Tired. So. It's- Great. Yeah, it's great. Access to these things creates a better quality of life. But back to the other question was, what are some of those things that that adults have been taught or parents believe they have to hold on to and they don't want to let go to or they believe they need to hold on to even if they think they shouldn't? Here's here's a simple one, one that comes to mind. And again, I consistent. Children love predictability. They love consistency. So let's just say that that uh, that's all great. But one of the things I think parent co- parents can kind of take too literally is that oh, I have to be consistent. I ha- I cannot deviate from the plan because the plan is the plan. And you know, if I if I if I go away from it, maybe I'll lose my authority. So one of the things I think is that parents can relax more. It's like, if you feel like your child, like you said, we have to leave the park now, but if you really feel like your child needs five more minutes at the park, it's okay, right? It's more important to be responsive than to be rigid. And I think that we get so, and again, I did it too, like an extreme, like having this sense that as the authority figure, I can't undermine myself. I shouldn't undermine myself. I have mm-hmm. to keep 
my, hold, hold the line. And now, again, after researching resilience for like three years, I can tell us that this new way of parenting, which I am, uh, I'm considering my book, Brain Body Parenting, and what I do, a new category of responsive parenting. Mm-hmm. It's it's a different than just gentle parenting or positive parenting. Of course, it has those elements in it. But responsive parenting is being responsive to our nervous system where we are and our child's nervous system, what they need in real time in their like brain and body in their plat- what I call the platform. And if you parent by the platform rather than by a rule – you're going to get a kid who's going to end up to be more flexible. Mm-hmm. And what does so, that platform look like then? Can you give a description? Of yeah. What so here's a, yeah. So here's a, a shake. You can have a sturdy platform and a shaky platform. So your kid, here's a shaky platform. They're starting to whine. They're starting to throw themselves around. They're starting to have loose control over their bodies. They're starting to um, run away from you. They're starting to make these weird looks on their face. Okay platforms getting shaky. They are not calm in their body. Their eyes are not bright. They're not playing, like really playing with purpose. They're starting to lose that platform strength of their body budget. We talk about the body budget too. Their body budget is starting to get lower and lower. They're heading towards this deficit in their body budget, like a financial budget. What do they need? A deposit. They may need sleep. They may may need some food. They may need some quiet time with you. They may need a hug. So when we have this platform that starts to get weak, sometimes we think about a weak platform as bad behavior or you're just whining to get attention. No, they're whining because they're losing their platform strength. And so the platform is a very useful concept. We can have a sturdy platform when a child is, you know, they're well-fed, they've had a good night's sleep, they are ready to go. That's when we can stretch them. That's typically when we want them in school. But when their platform starts to get shaky, we have to start making those deposits instead of the withdrawals. Like, okay, if you whine one more time, you're not going to get anything. You're not going to get any screen time today. Like we... We tend to see a shaky platform sometimes as a child's choice to misbehave rather than, you know, uh, uh, their nervous system and their and their physiology, their body budget, their allostasis is the very fancy scientific word starting to get weak. And, and you know, some people might might push back on that a little bit and say like, well, that's just kids having tantrums. What does it mean my kid is weak? You know, every kid has tantrums. Every kid gets frustrated. Every kid runs away. Every kid whines. How do we make it more manageable as us as parents? And what does that deposit look like um, other than just quiet time or something? What's a very practical or a few practical deposits that we can do to realign mm-hmm. and keep it more aligned in general? So first of all, we have to understand that uh, whining is not a purposeful misbehavior. Whining is one sign of a stress response, a stress behavior, because the tone of the voice is shifting. 
The other thing is that children don't throw tantrums. Tantrums throw children. So when they go into that state, it's called the fight or flight response. They are actually not doing it. Their body is kind of doing it for them. They're their um, platform has shifted. They're into the, what's called the, we call it the red pathway, but the autonomic nervous system. So um, what is the, what's the right deposit? It's what your child needs. So there's no one size fits all deposit, but maybe your child will need calming of that nervous system, which generally means we lower our voice, we lower our emotional tone, we are compassionate, we are, we see them, and we kind of slow things down. And 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 and, and how is that and how is that possible sometimes in our crazy lives that are just so overwhelmed if we are struggling to slow ourselves down how do we give space for our kids to be slower or slow them down yeah that's why i have a whole chapter dedicated to our platform because our emotional tone how we are actually how we are in our own nervous system reaches our children's brains milliseconds before our words do so it all starts with us. It all starts with that recognition. Okay, I'm amped right now. And not to scare us as parents, but we do kind of, we as humans, we share our state with others. Like if you've been in a room with someone who's really tense and uptight and pacing and red-faced, we kind of pick up on other people's nervous system cues because we have things like mirror neurons and we really soak in other people. So it starts with us, this compassionate realization that probably most of us either have to do too much or are doing too much. We're stretched. And um, again, many people have no choice but to live a stretched life. And I have so much compassion and respect for that. Um, and those who are privileged enough to be able to slow down the pace of their life, I guess what I have to say is children run at a different pace to us, especially if you're, again, from birth to about five or eight, they don't run on adult schedule. And we're, we're asking too much too soon of our children. We're asking them to do adult pacing when they are still developmentally in child pacing. Mm -hmm. And what are the long-term effects that you can talk about having that environment comparatively when you slow down, have the deposits uh, versus like the intense or the less compassionate uh, environment for kids? So that's the recipe for resilience. So when you have a pace that isn't too hot, isn't too fast, and when you are responsive to what each what your child needs, stretching them when they can be stretched and should be stretched, because we can't just leave them alone to raise themselves. We have to help them get to their just right challenge zone. But when we are responsive to their nervous system needs and flex with that. Um, and then also when we help them to stretch when it's appropriate to their nervous system, when they have the, enough gas in the tank, right, mm -hmm. when their platform is strong enough, that's the recipe for resilience. So we raise resilient kids by being responsive to what their emotional and physical needs are um, 
and then help them grow by being great, you know, participants in their life and resonating with them when they're struggling to say, I see you, you're not alone, you could do it. You know, mm. it's just this beautiful combination of nurturance and um, helping them see the great people they can become. You know, I think one of the biggest lessons I learned being a parent was learning to slow down and be more flexible myself. Yeah. Right. And yep. uh, I have ADHD and flexibility is not the easiest thing for me sometimes. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, and rigidity helps me get, you know, things done. But parenting has slowed me down in such a beautiful way to pay attention and notice and, and, and gain perspective and curiosity of life in general uh, that is so beautiful and magical that I would have never had if I just mm. never had kids. And it, not everyone needs to have kids or, or has to have kids. You know, if it's not right for you, you do what you need to do. Yeah. But for those listening who are parents, there isn't a perfect system, but there's a smarter system that helps you struggle less and and create an environment for your kids that is more productive and creates the goal of what parenting is, which is to create healthy adults. Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, that resiliency, that environment that you can create of predictability and, and, and love and compassion, understanding and connection mm -hmm. is something that is, is, is our responsibility as parents, which is scary sometimes. Yeah. So, so what is something that you can, a little piece of advice, lasting advice you can give to new parents or parents who have been there, maybe parents who been doing the same thing for a while and maybe need to shift it or change it up. What is one or two pieces of advice you can give that uh, parents who are listening can take away from the episode? Well, first of all, if we've said anything that made you think, oh no, I've done something wrong with my child and, and they can't recover, please don't think that because the most hopeful message I have is that our brains and bodies are always, always open to predicting new things. So we can shift as parents, our ch children will benefit from it, but also children grow through having imperfect parents. So part of this is about embracing our differences, embracing that we are not perfect humans and try to have so much self-compassion because many of us come into parenthood thinking, okay, I'm going to do all these things different than my parent parents did because I know all the bad things that I felt from my parents. And, and, and we do that and that's okay, but it's a lot of pressure. So self-compassion, when you find yourself saying or doing something that you swore you never would, just self-compassion because you're doing the best you can. And there's always room to change things. If you feel super um, concerned about your child, then th ah, seek therapy, right? Get the advice of a, of a provider whom you trust. There's always hope. Thank you so much for, for adding that piece. I know for myself as a parent, for so many listening, it's super important to have that perspective of hope and, and, and getting help and finding people like yourself. Um, you know, you have so many resources on your website. Your books are unbelievable that I've heard, and that's why I bought them. Of course, <laughs> couldn't read them. Thank you, movers. But the goal for us as parents is to to be smarter and happier and quality mm -hmm. of life versus stressed, overwhelmed, and and dreading the idea of, yeah. of parenting our kids, um, helping them learn and grow and, and be the beautiful 
beings they are and they are difficult and challenging and they're yes they're little humans right and they're little crazies sometimes but they're cute and yummy and you want to you want to do it so badly but sometimes we don't know how to do it and that's something that i think we all deserve for ourselves and for our kids to learn and educate ourselves Um, and you can find everything on on mona's website right mona delahook.com uh, she's oh. got books. She's got all these things. Mm. So thank you so much for spending oh. the time today to be on the show, um, to be a guiding force for so many, myself included. Um, really, really appreciate all the work that you do and continue to do for all of us. Oh, it's, it's been my pleasure. Thanks, Sally. Thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist And it only is happening because of you, the listeners, tuning in every week, even twice a week, to this show all about mental health, relationships, and wellness topics. And really, let's be honest, everything in between. And I'm so excited to show up every time and having great guests. So thank you. And if you have any questions, concerns, ideas, collaborations, Email me at thedudetherapist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at thedudetherapist. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your ideas. I can't wait to hear from you. And if you can go along, subscribe, rate, review on all the streaming sites that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it because that's what makes this thing happen. So thanks for tuning in this week and see you next time on the Dude Therapist podcast. We've got more guests and more great content coming your way.